came, but that unit went the way of all earth and uh, was breaking up, and so we were able to replace uh, that microphone, and so grateful for that provision. Also, if you noticed, uh, last week we had hardly any of our youth here, and this week we had a, a full youth team, and great to have you guys lead us in worship today, and uh, that gives me hope. And as I always encourage them before the, the worship service, I always tell them, look, this is not so much about making great music as it is worshiping a great God. And my prayer is that that would be their heart for the future. And that this generation, if Jesus would tarry, that they would love Jesus well and want to continue to glorify Him in song and with their whole lives. So that's encouraging to me to have that team up there. So here's a scenario I want you to imagine. You have $5, and that's it. Save for the clothing that's on your body. Your house has been foreclosed upon by the bank. You're homeless. You have sold pretty much all of your earthly goods. And now you're down to your last $5. You've tried to get a job, but you're too old and no one wants to hire you. You've looked to others, but the help of others has been sporadic. It's not been very consistent. There is no real form of social security in the society, society you live in. And you had a spouse, but that person died years ago, and it's pretty much been a, a downhill decline since then. There's no family of your own in the area. You have $5. What will you do with that $5? What will you put it toward? What will you look to? Will you take the $5 and try and squeeze out as much value as you can. Maybe you go to McDonald's and do the dollar value meal type of a thing, or, or maybe even get more conservative and go to the store, the dollar store, and buy ramen, you know, at 25 cents a pop, and try and eke it out as much as possible. Perhaps you say, well, I'm just going to take a chance and buy a couple lottery tickets and see if that somehow replenishes my need. But, uh, you see that life is ebbing away. It seems that hope is hard to come by. What will you do with the little that you have left? Who will you look to? Or what or whom? And I want you to hold on to that thought. What would you do if you're down to your last $5? Just hold that. One of the themes that runs through the Scripture and we see it over and over again, is that of being deceived by appearances, by outward appearances. We oftentimes value people or things by their beauty or their strength, talent or wealth, earthly position or popularity. Well, other things that don't seem so strong, so popular, so beautiful, we dismiss, we ignore, we even downgrade. But 
you know, the good thing is that God doesn't value things like we do. He sees their hidden value. And a great example of this would be in um, 2 Samuel chapter 16, where God calls upon the prophet Samuel to go to the house of Jesse and anoint a son to be the next king of Israel. And so Jesse brings out his sons. He brings out his firstborn, Eliab. And and, uh, Samuel says, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me, because he's good-looking, he's tall, he's attractive. God says no. Aminadab, the nextborn, is it him, Lord? No. Shammah, is it him, Lord? Again, tall, handsome, good-looking, no. All seven sons, at least the first seven sons of Jesse, come through the line. And God rejects them all. And then, (laughs) this is what God says to, to Samuel. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So after the first seven come through, Samuel says to Jesse, is there anyone else? He says, oh yeah, oh yeah, there's the youngest, David. He's out in the field. He's watching the sheep. We'll bring him in. And that's the one the Lord chooses. Because David is a man after his own heart. A man after his own heart. He was the youngest. I don't know if he was the shortest, whatever. But God chose him to be his king. The king after his own heart. So today we're back in Luke. And if you have your Bibles, open it up. We're in chapter 20 at the very end. And we're going to go into, verse, into chapter 21 as well. But Jesus is going to lay down some heavy valuation today on what he considers that he values. That is a heart towards God. And we're going to see an exercise kind of in compare and contrast. And what we'll see is that what's valued by this world is oftentimes not valued by God. In fact, he wants to change what we value. And so we're going to have two persons, or a group of persons and another person that that God is going to show us today in his word. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dig into what God has for us We'll be in uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 45 through 47, as we start things. So Lord, I'm grateful for your word, and I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see what you have us, what you would have for us today. Oftentimes we are blinded by beauty, by strength, by power, and uh, Lord, we want to see what you value. We want to see where real life is, where real beauty is, where real power is, and that's in you. So Lord, open the eyes of our hearts and give us grace to respond to what you want to show us today. It's in your name I pray these things. Amen. And so you know, we're in that section of Luke where Jesus has come to Jerusalem. Coming as its Messiah, as its King. He's acting like it too. And the leaders, the religious leaders take exception to that. They challenge Him. There's a lot of theological sparring, if you will. In fact, last week, 
we were uh, talking about Jesus kind of going on the offensive, talking about, say, okay, if the Messiah is the son of David, then why does David in Psalm 110 call him Lord? We talked about the reality of that last week. He's not just an earthly king. He's got divine uh, origins. But now that Jesus is on the, on, the, on the offensive, he's going to take things one step further. And Jesus is not going to be offensive just to offend, but to hopefully open eyes, to wake some people up who are asleep, who need to have their eyes open. And so this is what he says, starting at verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus is saying these things in the temple, in a public place, with a crowd around him, maybe even some of these teachers of the law around him. He's saying these things. Now the teachers of the law, literally the scribes, were people who were entrusted with not only copying uh, the scriptures, because they didn't have a printing press then, right? It was all on scrolls. And so these scribes would take the scriptures and copy them down. And they were very meticulous about that. And they were, you know, if they had a certain amount of errors, they totally discarded the thing. So there was, there was a, a, a very heavy um, commitment to getting it right. But they didn't just copy the scriptures. They commented on the scriptures. They were the teachers of the law. They were the people that were there to say, okay, it says this, keep the Sabbath holy, so what does that mean? What does that mean? And oftentimes they came up with man-made rules, like a Sabbath day journey. On the Sabbath, you're supposed to keep it holy and not work, and so you shouldn't go more than 1,000 steps on the Sabbath. No Fitbit on the Sabbath, okay? I mean, that's what they were about. They were setting public policy, if you will, about how to follow the law. Now, the scribes came from two, two groups. The priests, the priests, and we read about a scribe when we were in the book of Ezra. It was Ezra himself. That's what God had, had raised him up to do. And so, you know, there were the godly examples of that. Also the Pharisees. And these people were well-connected, again, at this time in the first century, with the religious powers and the leaders. And this position can be used for great good, for helping people understand God's Word. I don't think the thousand-step thing was what God intended. I think those were man-made rules. But there were other things that God was very plain about, and they could give clarity to. But it's a power position too, right? And sometimes power 
and position can corrupt. And unfortunately, this was what was going on with these teachers of the law, with these people who set policy. They were using it to serve themselves, their own honor, their own ego. And it's pretty plain by what Jesus has been saying, right? And now note, here's what, what Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't be like them. Don't be like these people who are supposed to have, you know, positive influence over the people, yet are concerned with outward appearance. <laughs> it started with their dress. These long robes, which the Greeks called stola. They were these long outer garments, right, that would flow in the air as they walked by. Kind of like going down the runway. Swimwear, very nice. Their garments were expensive, and they were there to denote, I'm important. I'm a person of status. So pay attention to me. You know, we're not too far away from that today, are we? You have the right shoes, the right trademark on your clothing, the right tech, the right car. We say this is what gives you significance. This is what gives you value. But you better make some more money because it will be obsolete in six months. Right? To value stuff. That's the lie that gives us significance. Right? And unfortunately, sometimes we, even as Christians, get caught up in that. Man, if I could just have that, that new set of Air Jordans. If I could just have the newest iPhone, if I could just have that Tesla, not your daughter. But we, you know, we think that's what's going to give us life, what's going to give us significance. And Jesus says, don't get caught up in that. Don't get caught up in outward appearances. No. Value what I value. My kingdom and people who are made in my image. Value those things. Jesus has come to brought change to that. They wanted public honor. They came through the marketplace. And they, people, you know, these people were, again, distinguished by their dress. And the, the people, the common people, would rise in their presence. And the thing is also they expected people to rise in their presence. Their expectations, hey, hey, I'm a man of God. Respect me. Revere me. I'm important. You know, and it's okay for somebody who's ministry in ministry to recognize and interact with people uh, that they have care and, and are shepherding. I oftentimes run into people in the store, Walmart, Target, uh, you know, Hy-Vee. Even behind masks, they can tell who I am and I can tell who they are. And so that's okay. That's great. But again, their heart was, was far from that. They were not being servants to these people. It was, no, revere me. I'm going to tell you something. And this is very quirky about me, perhaps, but 
I do not go by the title Reverend Nathan Brand. Because I think it's pretentious. I don't ask people to revere me. I pray that I'm living a life that's respectable. I'm being faithful to God's Word. But I don't ask people to revere me. I pray that my life brings reverence, but reverence not to me, but to the living God. So that's one thing. That's why I don't ever hide behind that title. I just say, no, I'm not going to do that because I also know I'm a sinner in need of Jesus, too. So just, just a thought. They wanted to be honored in worship. In the synagogue, culturally, what would happen is there would be seats against the wall facing the congregation, if you will. And those were the best seats because it gave you access to the podium where you could come up and read the Torah or you could make commentary. But it was a place where it's like, hey, I'm significant. I've got something to say, and I want access to that. I'm important, so listen to me, is what they're trying to say. You know, Proverbs 18.2 says this, A fool finds no pleasure in understanding, but only delights in airing his own opinions. Paul Larson and I were, were talking the other day. You know what's missing in our society right now, and even amongst Christians, is the ability to listen. The ability to understand where other people are coming from. That doesn't mean we vary from what the Word of God says. But we don't listen to each other. We just like to tell the people our opinions. Maybe that's something that Jesus wants to do in us as his people. Give us grace to listen to others a little bit more. They wanted honor in social gatherings. They wanted the important seats at the banquet. The upfront seats. The special set-aside seats or table. At Sabbath meals or weddings or feasts. They felt like they needed to be featured as prominent. It was asked to indicate, well, this occasion is significant because I'm here, because I'm present. It isn't in party unless I'm there. That's how important I am. You know what's funny sometimes? We kind of revert into what I call middle school party things. We'll call an event. And sometimes the first question is, well, who's going to be there? Who's going to be there? Rather than, no, you've been invited. Show up. Because you have the pleasure, you have the privilege to be invited. Rather than to wonder, are the important people going to be there? The important people are the ones who God is going to call to be there. The worst part about these scribes, about these teachers of the law, is they engaged in less than honorable behavior. It says that they devoured widows' houses. 
Now, the significance of a widow in that society was not just that that person had lost their spouse, but that they had no male relative to help them, you know, support them and help them navigate through society. And having a male relative to represent them was significant in legal matters, in civic matters. You could be taken advantage of very easily if you didn't have that person. That's why the book of Ruth is so significant. Because Naomi returns as a widow. She has no representative. And these scribes, perhaps all this widow was left was her house, are trying to take advantage of that, take that away from her. And we don't know exactly what they were doing. Were they coming to, say, coming to them and saying, well, you know what? If you would mortgage your house, you could contribute more to the temple and its building. Or perhaps a tax, an inheritance tax, was put on that house. We don't know exactly. But they were using their position to try and take away what little these widows had left. They were devouring their houses what little they had to make a livelihood. That's what they were doing. And all out of self-interest. And take it one step further, this is in contrast to God's Word. You know, if you do a quick survey of just the Old Testament, there's so many times that God says, I am concerned about the widow. Do not defraud her. Don't take advantage of her. I'm a defender of the widows and orphans. In fact, the whole harvest process was set aside so that the widows and the orphans could come and, and have kind of, kind of a welfare system. Basically, the only, the, what should be harvested was what was down the middle. Okay? The sides and the areas on the sides, that was to be left for the orphans and the widows to come and harvest. And if something was dropped in the field, you didn't go back and get it. You left it for the orphans. You left it for the widows. That was the welfare system. Also the tithe. The tithe didn't go all to the temple or the tabernacle. Some of it stayed in the, in the storehouses. And then at the festival, you would share that tithe with the Levites, the orphans and the widows, and the foreigners. The way to take care of them. So this is built all throughout God's system. And in fact, we get to the book of Isaiah, he tells us people, you should be defending, you should be taking up the, the, the case of the widow. But these men, who were supposed to be teaching the law, this is what it says in God's Word, instead were exploiting them. Because they didn't view them as significant. They viewed them as insignificant. As something to be just trampled on. Trounced on, taking advantage of. And then there's the end part of pretense in prayer. And for a show, they make lengthy prayers. Again, their actions are doing this. But man, they've got the language to call upon God in a public place and make it look all good. 
They know the right things to say. It's eloquence, and, and they can just say, oh, that man must be close to God. Just listen to how he prays. All the flowery language. Yeah, their actions were the contrary. Jesus said earlier in the same gospel, Luke 6, 43-44, you will know them by their fruits. What's really going on is being shown by their actions, not by their words. And they're going to experience a surprise ending, if you will. Jesus says, these men will be punished most severely. Whoa, that's pretty harsh. What if you heard that about yourself? I know I would be taken aback. I go, what, 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 what? Because these were the religious leaders. These are the religious experts, the policy setters. Unfortunately, (laughs) these men are blinded to their own need because they have sought to attain significance, position, wealth, and even spiritual standing through their own grabbing, through their own clawing. They're unaware of their need. And this is a warning. This is a wake-up call. You're heading down the wrong pathway. And Jesus, at the very least, is warning his disciples, don't go down this pathway. It's all outward appearance. It's all pretense. The things that this exposes are, number one, false or faulty worship. Again, the context is worship in the temple. And it's full of hypocrisy. Number two, you know what it shows us? Just from a big biblical standpoint, from Old Covenant to New Covenant, that the law can't save us and the law can't change our hearts. Because these men knew the Scriptures. They probably had most of it memorized. They knew it. They could quote it, chapter and verse. But the knowledge that they had didn't change their hearts. They were greedy They were selfish. They were self-absorbed. And they really, probably, in knowing the Scripture, were looking for loopholes, for exceptions as to why I don't need to take care of the widow, as to why I don't need to protect her, as to why I can take advantage of her. And ultimately, that they need a Savior. That they need a Savior. What they're doing is not going to bring salvation. They need... Jesus, the King, the Messiah. Who is going to go to the cross, who's going to be buried in a tomb, and who's going to rise from the dead to pay for their sinful deficit. But if they don't have their eyes open to who He is, indeed, indeed, they will be punished most severely. So here's the one picture. A worship that's contained in outward appearance. The next picture, in contrast, is Jesus commending self-sacrificial worship. And here's where we get into chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. 
As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting in their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. I think these two incidents in Luke are connected together. One, again, to compare and contrast. The text in the Scripture is inspired by God. The chapter divisions and verses are not. They were put in later by someone who tried to break it up and and divide it up, and I think a lot of times they got it right. I think in this situation, perhaps not. That's my opinion. But again, this the context is in the in the temple it's worship and specifically it happens to do with giving and these what happens with the giving in the temple is this it's located in the court of, of women so it goes from the court of the gentiles where the nations can kind of enter where things are being sold to the court of the women this is where the women can come and worship to the court of the sons of, of israel where only the men can go and then the next area the holy place where the, where the altar is and where only the priests can go. But this area, anyone can go who's a Jew. And people would put their contributions into 13, one of 13 treasure chests or treasury boxes. And what they had was kind of a shofar. A shofar is a, a horn like that of a, of a goat and they used it, or a sheep, and they used it to, uh, oftentimes blow it, use it as a trumpet. But this thing was kind of a big wide horn that tapered down into the box, the treasury chest, all right? And so people would come with their money and they'd pour it in, right? And probably the more you poured in, the more noise it made. It's kind of like being in a casino and somebody hits the jackpot and hears clink, 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 clink. So, you know, the very wealthy people would come in and dump their money in. There's no paper money here, remember. And it'd kind of make an announcement. Hey, I just made a pretty significant contribution. This is good. I'm supporting the temple. I'm supporting God's house. I'm supporting what God is doing. Now, God, God is the only one who can judge people's hearts, right? But oftentimes people would do this to be noticed. To be noticed about how godly they were. And then being noticed, or looking to be noticed, maybe they weren't as godly as they thought. But isn't that how we value things in our world? What? How big of a contribution did that person make? Oh, man, that's awesome. That's significant. And you know what? There are monetary amounts. I am always grateful for people who are are generous to contribute here at, at Berean. But God is most concerned about the heart. Again, this money is being used for construction of the temple, it's maintenance, it's employees. 
God's work and worship. But it can oftentimes giving can be for the wrong reason, the wrong attitude. So think about this. Some wealthy people just have come and made a significant contribution. And then you have this widow. She's got a couple copper coins, right? I wonder if she felt intimidated. Because I'll never be able to give what that person gave. I'll never be able to contribute what that person contributed. And what she gave was what's called a lepta. That copper, she gave two of those. Just again, give you a sense of economy for this. 132 leptas made up a day's wage for a day worker. So let's just translate that into modern day terms, all right? Let's just say at $11 an hour for a day worker, that's $88. You divide that by 132, that's 67 cents approximately. So she had two of them. So she had about a, a buck 40 maybe, or a little less than that. By today's standards, that's not, a, that's not a big contribution, is it? It's not a whole lot. It wasn't a whole lot then either. By the world's standards, it wasn't significant. But praise the Lord, he doesn't look at things that way, by the world's standards. And it's not by the world's standards that it will be measured. And Jesus makes this surprising statement. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. You know, and maybe someone's saying, what are you talking about, Jesus? Come on now. All these people gave gifts out of their wealth. They gave out of their excess. They gave out of what they really didn't need. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. I asked you earlier, if you were down to your last $5, that's all you had left, what would you do with it? This woman decides to give it to God. Why? Seems insignificant in comparison to others. What difference would it make? And again, we can get trapped in comparison, right? I can't give as much as that person. I can't do that as well as that person. I'm not as gifted as that person, so what? I'm not going to give. We can be trapped by comparing to others. And I, I want to tell you this. I don't think this passage is just completely limited to financial giving. It certainly is revealing the heart. But I think it has to do with just giving your life, your time, your talents, your treasure, worshiping God with your very self, giving all of yourself to Him. The Apostle Paul Talks about that in Romans chapter 12. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual expression of service or worship. This is giving of what you have rather than in comparison. And here's something else. I don't know if you've thought about this while we're reading this. But how did Jesus know that she was down to her last two leptas? That this is all she had. She probably didn't announce, this is all I got. Here we go. Now this is where Jesus as the God-man intervenes, right? Because he knows her. He knows what's going on in her life. It's like Hagar in Genesis 16 where she experiences the God who sees. I see you. I know what you're going through. I know what your situation is. It's like the woman at the well who says, I know you have no husband because you had five husbands before that. But I see you. And I know you. And I know your situation. Isn't that our temptation sometimes when we encounter a situation where we feel like we're in poverty, whether it's financial or something else is going on, and we're going, God, do you see me? Do you know? And he says, yeah, I do. I do. I see you. I know exactly what you're going through. And I'm going to be with you. But ultimately, she offers this up This, all she has, what she's got left, as a surrender of sacrifice. Say, Lord, God, my life is not in my money or lack thereof. It's in you. It's in you. And I trust you to meet me in my lack in my deficit, to make up what I do not have. Make up what I do not possess. And is this not the perfect picture of what God desires of His people? Be wholly dependent upon Him for everything? Because that was not what the scribes were doing. The scribes were grabbing all that they could get through their own hands, through their craft or craftiness and through their graft. But she is saying, Lord, I am dependent upon you. And I surrender all that I have. All that I've got left. It's yours. I trust you to meet me and care for me and provide for me. I wonder if in heaven we'll get the rest of the story. Because I believe that God did meet that woman. He did care for her. He did take care of her. By offering up the very last that she had. But here's something else I want to point out to you. Isn't this also the perfect picture of the gospel? Think about this. We come to Jesus like this poor widow. And we, we know that we're bankrupt, we know that we're poor, and we offer up whatever else we have left. 
And honestly, there's nothing that we really do contribute. But we surrender ourselves to Him. Saying, Lord, I am spiritually poor. I am spiritually broken. The first words of the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I trust you to make up the difference. To be the difference. In total dependence, I give myself to you. I surrender me. I surrender all that I think I've got going for me to you. That's the riches of Christ. That's the riches of the cross. And it's the only thing that will make us worthy to be presented before a holy God and have right standing. He's the only one who can make up that difference of our spiritual poverty. He's the only one who can pay our soul's debt. And so I'm going to ask you, have you surrendered to the Savior? Is your trust in what He has done? Because in this story, it's not a story in this history, He's going to go to the cross for you or for me. He's going to be put in a tomb. But He's also going to rise from the dead. And are you trusting in Him and what He has to offer in giving you life, life that you cannot generate yourself? Or are you trying to make up the difference yourself? By getting enough knowledge, like these scribes, living a life that's good enough, trying to make up the difference yourself by being self-sufficient, whether that's financially, or trying to generate significance in our society, or get enough life experience, trying to suck the marrow out of this life, and it will always leave you wanting. Have you surrendered to the Savior? You know, Jesus <laughs> tells us in another gospel, that the enemy only comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come to give you life and give it to the full. God entered history. God entered history to make up the deficit of your spiritual poverty. Will you surrender to Him? Trust in what He's done and going to the cross for you, for me. Because we cannot stand before holy God on our own. We're bankrupt. The Scripture says, to as many as received Him, even to those who believed in His name, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. And maybe today you need to surrender to Him. And if that's you, my friend, brother, or sister, I'm going to pray for you at the end of this sermon. But for those of us who believe, Jesus still calls us to surrender. Surrender all that we have, all that we are. 
And maybe there's something about your life that's disappointing that you're holding on to and you just need to surrender it to Him. To let go of that thing and give it to Him and trust Him with it. Whether as a single people, you're, person you're waiting for a spouse, as a couple you're waiting for a child, maybe as a professional, you're, you're waiting for that next step, that next job. I don't know what it is. We're all trying to find life in those things. But Jesus says, will you trust me with them? Will you surrender it to me? Will you let me breathe life into that? And trust I'm going to meet you there because I do see you. I see where you're at. And I want to meet you. A compare and contrast in worship. A group that's clawing and trying to grab all the significance, all the wealth, and do it all themselves. And one who surrenders, even what little she has, and finds herself pleasing God in the flesh with her worship and experiencing the life that He wants to give. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up here as I pray. But if you're that person that today needs to surrender to Jesus for the first time, what I'm going to share, folks, are not magical words. It's just an expression of a sincere heart. But if that's you, just pray along with these words that I'm going to try and help you out with. Lord Jesus... I realize I stand as a debtor before a holy God. I can't live the, the life that it takes to stand before a holy God. And I can't please you in my flesh. I need what you did in dying in my place on the cross to forgive my sins and then to give me the life that only you can give with your Holy Spirit and giving me eternal life. So Jesus, I receive you come into my life. I receive what you've done. Come and change me. Make me your child. Make me your son. Make me your daughter today. I'm tired of trying to do this myself. I need you and I surrender. And for the rest of us, Lord, would you help us to get our eyes back on you? To be looking to you for the life that we need. And you see us in those areas, Lord, where maybe life has left us wanting or feeling barren. Would you give us grace to surrender those areas to you? And knowing that you'll meet us. Knowing that you see us. And knowing that you want to do immeasurably more all that we can ask. Or imagine. So give us grace, Lord, to surrender to you. And Lord Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen.